Hello, and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy Class 23. Today we begin our discussion of George MacDonald's classic, The Princess and the Goblin, after some brief apologies for the pronouncedly dismal quality of my voice. Okay, good morning. Um, I apologize for the fact that my voice is not better but worse since Monday, so I'm going to be croaking uncomfortably along today, uh, and I apologize for the... Uh, non-euphonious nature of my croaking. Um, we today go back to The Princess and the Goblin, and I say go back because it was published before the Book of Wonder. We're not going in chronological order here, and my justification for not going in chronological order is that I wanted to read The Princess and the Goblin in connection with the later stories that we're going to read because it is more like them. That is, I wanted to do Lang's fairy stories and then Lord Dunsany because he's doing a similar kind of thing. That is, the way that he's stringing together short stories, um, which are like... Uh, sort of more episodic fairy tales. Before then, we shifted to longer and more sustained narratives, <clears throat> especially longer and more sustained narratives, primarily for children, of course, as The Princess and the Goblin is, um, as The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, um, as The Last Unicorn is less so, and Sabriel even less so. Um, but that, I think, is part of a shift that we will see over the course of the 20th century. Um, so here we go back. Um, the, the Princess and the Goblin was published several decades. In fact, George MacDonald would have been a contemporary of Lang's. Um, so we're further back chronologically uh, towards Lang or even before uh, Lang in, uh, in, in doing The Princess and the Goblin. Now... What do you notice about this? Thinking about this in the context, of course, as the syllabus of the course suggests that you do, in the context of the other fairy stories that we've read, um, what strikes you as different? What did you notice about this story? Eric? The goblins, which, as of right now, appear to be the fairy creatures, and I'm using air quotes on that, the fairy creatures we're presented with, they're given, even though it's a legend, we're given a history to them that suggests they were once human. Good. So even though they've changed over time, they're still us, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, and I think there are a bunch of things that we can notice with that, right? We do have, you know, the human mortal world. We are given a, you know, a terra cognita, right? I love that Lord Dunsany phrase, right? We're given a terra cognita, a mundane base world, right? Um, being the princess's house, or at least the downstairs of the princess's house, um, and the other quite normal, you know, nursery and kitchen routines um, in the house. The goblin world is very much like that sort of other world, and it's in a similar kind of location. You expect, I would think we would expect at this point, that you need to go out of the house and go out into the woods, or in this case, into the mountains, in order to end up in the place where strange things start happening and where you are now in the land of different and magical creatures. Um, but there are some major differences. As Aaron says, these different and, I guess, magical? I mean, I can understand why you're wanting to put God, the fairy and quotation marks there, because um, they're not obviously magical, but certainly, in as much as there is an other world, 
it's the, the goblin world certainly seems to be it. What else do you know? And, and I, but I didn't get to actual your point, which is that we're given a history for it and a connection between it and the mortal world. That the goblins, we're told, are humans who have seceded, right? Who appear to have successfully seceded not only from the realm, but from humanity itself. And they have become changed. And we're not told exactly the mechanism of the change, right? We're told that there are various legendary explanations of this, but we're not given any of the legendary explanations. Um, so we're given a history, though no explanation. So that connection is one interesting thing. The other world, inasmuch as the goblin realm is an other world, it's not completely other from humanity. In fact, we see, we already have evidence um, of intermarriage and interbreeding between them. Um, the first wife of the goblin king was human, which is why she wore shoes. Scandalous practice, that. Um, good. What else? What else struck you about the relationship between the goblin world and the human world? Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, with the reason the goblins were so hideous, I guess I kind of assumed it was it had something to do with the sun. Because they kept referring to humans as sun dwellers or upworlders, something like that. And so I was linked to the idea that maybe the grotesque form of the goblins was associated with the lack of sunlight. Yeah, and uh, we are, that is suggested explicitly at the very beginning when on page four, the explanation of the goblins, the initial explanation of the goblins and their changes given, we're told <clears throat> um, that those, that is those people who had caught sight of any of them, said that they had greatly altered in the course of generations. And no wonder seeing that they lived away from the sun in cold and wet and dark places. Um, the sun is clearly very important. Um, and it's, it is therefore not... Therefore, I think it's clearly important that we are replacing a middle-of-the-forest threshold with an underground threshold. Th this is a different world um, than the woodland world of or the woodland borderland, anyway, of fairy that we've seen before. Um, and I think that this is one of the ways in which we can see the goblins have been cut off from the sun. The fairies in, 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 in fairy before were never... They were other, but they weren't unnatural, exactly. The goblins are unnatural and have been altered by their unnaturalness. And living away from the sun. Good. What else? Jordan, what else? Um, well, there seem to be magical qualities even to ostensibly human protagonists. Uh, the princess, we're told, cannot tell a lie. It's, physic it's like physically impossible for anything but truth to leave her lips. And the, uh, maybe it's the Tolkien family speaking, but the, the song, the, what is his name, Curry sings, seems to me to have power in itself as much as the government avoid it. it is, uh, the, the song is a power as much as this yeah, um, I, I, both of those I think are really good points. Um, now we're not told that there's any magic involved in Irene's incapacity for telling lies. This is just like by nature what princesses do, right? Everybody knows, obviously, princesses never tell lies. Now, of course, if we take back 
if we walk back a couple steps, we can sort of see the utility of this, right? This is a children's story. Now, everybody knows princesses don't tell lies, right? Uh, so especially if you have daughters that you're reading the story to, this is useful, right? Um, and I, guess, so, I mean, I think in some ways we can see, there's certainly that's one moment, I think there are other moments in this story where we can see uh, sort of a moralistic utility of the story that it has with its, I mean, we saw this in Lang too at various points. There are places in which certainly the stories are being taken advantage of in order to, 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 to convey a moral message. Now, that I don't think makes them fundamentally different from adult stories, of course. Uh, I mean, have you ever read Dickens? Uh, but anyway, I mean, it's just different. It's just done differently, I think. But, but that I don't think is the only answer, or even a very good answer to that, um, because although I do think that that's true and that that certainly is perceptible, it's an answer which avoids the question, which is okay. Well, given that that may be the effect that it, that it has upon the listeners, and even if we assume that that is in fact the effect that uh, McDonald was intending it to have, which we'll never know because he's dead, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is this is the story that he's telling. Within this story, we are asked to believe that she is not capable of telling a lie. And therefore, it has consequences within that story world itself. And I think that here, one of the things that we can see is, and this seems to me to come up many times in The Princess and the Goblin, is sort of the that it doesn't seem exactly magical. It's more like what happens in the Horde of the Ghibelins, um, like that is how the knight conquers the dragon in the Horde of the Ghibelins, right? Hi, do you realize what genre we're in? Okay. Rules are, I win, you lose. Why fight? Right? I mean, it's a marvelous argument. And it's I, Irene, she, she knows her genre too. Everybody knows. Princesses don't, well, who knows that? I guess readers of certain kinds of fairy tales know that, right? This is a, this is a, this is a, a genre rule. But it does, therefore, have a kind of a magical force to it. Irene, we will see at several points, she has a kind of power because of who she is, by her nature, which seems to be, uh, true of several people, I think, in the story, especially back to the goblins. Who you are, what your nature is, seems to matter a lot uh, in, this, in this story. Um, I, your point about verse, of course, is also very important, I think. Um, it certainly seems very conspicuous that rhyming in verse is, is the thing that bothers the goblins as much as it does. <clears throat> and why Curdy, though he's not even full grown, has no fear of them, because he happens to be pretty good at like making up rhymes off the top of his head, and so therefore that gives him power over the goblins. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, that I think uh, <clears throat> that to readers of Tolkien should feel familiar. Um, but back to the goblins for a second. I want to be thinking about their natures the way that we have these two worlds, again, like the terra cognita of the downstairs of, of, of Irene's house and the, the terra incognita, the 
comparatively marvelous world, marvelous even if only because it's cut off from her, because her world has been so circumscribed by her house. She's never let outside at night, and so therefore never allowed to wander far away from her house, because she has to be able to get back inside by dusk. Um, so we have this very narrow, this very small known world, this very small mundane world, and the world around it, which is made, even if only by unfamiliarity, strange, and at least potentially wonderful or perilous. Um, <clears throat> but more about, more about the, gobl- the goblin realm, especially, again, thinking in terms that we've seen before. As I, as I was saying, it's not, just, it's not just in the middle of the forest you find this world, but underground that you find this world. And it's not separate from the human world entirely. It's separate from Irene's world, but it's not separate from the human world. Because you have a human world down there, the miners. Emma? Um, one thing I that was interesting to me, at least, is uh, the definite family structure you get with the goblins, and then like, also the hierarchy you have. Like, with, uh, with Orpheo, we know there's a king, but, but here you've got like, a king, a high chancellor, you've got a mother, you've got a father, you've got children, you've got this whole it's just the human world underground, which since they come from humans, I guess it's too weird, but it was weird from their perspective. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That is a way, it's, it's <clears throat> even just sort of the sense of domesticity that we get from the overhearing of the goblin family conversation, right? Even like the snipping that goes on in the family. I mean, it's, it's a very domestic conversation that they're having, not just because they're actually moving house at the time, but, um, but yet I agree, it is more closely parallel. It's less other from human experience, um, though it is different. Remember what they say. Curdy remarks on this. Our, our, the narrator draws our attention to this, I think, fairly forcefully. They're moving house, right? They're moving their furniture to a different place. And what does the father say? What's their plan? They're going to go take this stuff down, and then what are they going to do? <clears throat> he said, they have, to, they, they have to come back for the rest of their stuff. They have to come back for the rest of their household effects, which they're leaving behind. <coughs> and Curdy breaks in, and what does he find? Nothing. Nothing. He would not even have recognized it as a, 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 an inhabited space. It looks like a cave. And he literally doesn't even know what are their household effects. They said they left stuff behind. What? Rocks? I mean, like, is there something special to them about these? I guess so. <clears throat> it looks like a totally uninhabited cave. And again, what I would, I think that that's an interesting moment of contrast, Emily, in exactly the direction that you were talking about. On the one hand, overhearing them, they sound like a human family. There are differences, of course, but the parallel is very close. But then you go into their house, <clears throat> and it doesn't look like a house at all. That their domestic society is in this way sort of subhuman, I guess, if that's a right way to talk about it. I'm not quite sure it is. Well, sub certainly seems appropriate. There's certainly subhuman in the sense of being below them. Do you remember the other difference between the goblin world and the human world that the goblin father points to? When Curdie reaches his hand out and accidentally touches the foot of the sun goblin. You remember the exchange that he has with his dad at that point? 
it was, it was small, not I think enormously consequential, but very interesting. Taylor? Um, he immediately says, uh, a small creature just grabbed my foot, and again says, you're imagining things. Why can't it possibly have been an animal that reached out and licked his foot? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> remember? There's no wild beasts in our country. We don't have wild beasts. Are you suggesting that our land is overrun by wild animals? Like the land of the humans? That is insulting to goblin dignity, even to suggest. So despite the fact that you just obviously felt something warm and flesh-like touch your foot, you must have imagined it. Because it is not possible, in fact, it is insulting to conceive of the idea that wild animals. You are no patriot. You are no patriot, exactly. <laughs> it is unpatriotic to suggest that. What do you make of that? Yeah, okay. They tend to think of the human world as very savage and barbaric, and it would make sense then that there would be savage and barbaric animals in a horrible world like that of the humans. But in the civilized world of the goblins, there can be no such thing. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I think there are several things there, right? On the one hand, they clearly consider themselves a higher civilization, ironically. Right? And we see the irony of that is in several directions, not only because they're geographically lower, but also thinking back to the house thing, right? I mean, it's not that they actually have devised crater technologies or things like that. They, they, they're not technologically advanced. They don't, there's nothing outwardly demonstrable as being more sophisticated about their society. Even when Curdie's exploring it, even as far as he transgresses to, what, to right at the very edge of what appears to be the heart of the goblin realm, namely the throne chamber and the, the audience chamber and the council of the king, he doesn't see anything. Any sign of obvious, you know, what we would call civilization, yet they consider themselves a higher civilization than we. So that's one interesting thing. But then also just the fact that it is to them a mark of savagery in humans and a mark of greater civilization in them that there are no wild animals. Their realm is cleaner by the absence of fauna. No, total absence. They have animals. They're creatures about whom we've received several cryptic references, but uh, as yet, no explanation. Well, and to kind of um, like support the goblins' theory that they're actually better, the, I'm thinking about the element of fear between the two sides, and the humans are, from what I can tell, are more afraid of the goblin world than the goblin world is afraid of the human world. So although the humans may be living on the surface and living in a more beautiful place, the goblins seem to be much less afraid of the humans. Yes. So why haven't the goblins taken over? Why haven't they stomped them? Oops. Wait. Sorry. That'd be hard. Why haven't they headbutted them? (laughs) They're afraid of the sun. They only come out at night. So it's interesting because But that makes for an interesting contrast. Another sort of interesting irony about goblin civilization, I think there are several of these at work in this story. On the one hand, they are less afraid. 
and they speak openly of the goblins, whereas the humans, of course, around Irene, they're all like, oh, shh, shh, don't talk about the goblins, right? She's ra- been raised in ignorance of the existence of goblins. Um, but even the other humans don't, uh, the miners don't care. The goblins are a fact of life to the miners. Um, but, and Curdie is unafraid. But yeah, the, but the rest of them live in fear, certainly live in fear. Those who surround the princess are afraid for her <coughs> and uh, for themselves if they're not sufficiently cautious, right? So um, yeah, the humans live as if they are at war or under threat, and the goblins don't. And yet the goblins don't seem to be that much of a threat to the humans because they're afraid of the sun, because they're so limited. Um, how about goblin physiology? What do you think is significant about, go- about goblin physiology? They were humans. Somehow they've changed. But the ways that they've changed seem conspicuous. Interesting. What are the two most significant portions of a goblin's body? Yeah, the head and the feet, right? Those are the only things that are really singled out <clears throat> as being interesting. We're told at the beginning, <clears throat> we're given this fantastical non-description at the start, right? <clears throat> oh, like, you couldn't imagine anything grotesque enough. Although then he denies that. Actually, they're probably talking about their creatures. They're mysterious creatures. The goblins weren't that bad. Though I don't think our illustrator has done much justice to them. They don't appear to be bearded, for one thing. And I stopped looking at the illustrations very carefully when once I noticed that all of the goblins seemed to be wearing shoes in the first one. (laughs) Obviously, that's not right. But their head and their feet there are two things that are different about their feet. They're toeless and very soft, squishy, and vulnerable. And their heads are different in two ways from human heads. They're bulbous and hard. Hmm? They're bulbous and yeah, they're bigger and they're harder. The goblin's glory is his head. <laughs> Jordan? They also suggest that they might not have fingers, although that's kind of led to believe that it's just some blowout talking. And I love that they suggest that there's a scholar, a wannabe scholar maybe, who's like, perhaps fingers and toes were developed as we created handicrafts and became these this erudite, evolved species. Whereas the government has primordial because they don't have fingers. That's right. And, and I love the business about mittens, right? Little kids' mittens obviously are a relic of the ancient past before fingers were developed. Good theory. Though you'll notice <clears throat> there are several points. The narrator of this book can uh, deceive you, I think. Uh, that is, of course, he's writing in a very simple tone, and he... It, 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 can, it can sound really uh, simplistic, but the narrator of this story is not exceptionally trustworthy. 
uh, and often will do things like that. Where he'll spin out these long theories, and then just be like, well, some people say that anyway, but it's kind of funny when they say that, so let's move on. It's like, wait, so now you're telling us that that isn't true? Actually, you were just joking the whole time. And you have to stop and look back and like, okay, wait, now where are we? What have we, in fact, learned? And often, as is in the case with the description of the goblins in part one, where you get these like, they are hideously grotesque. Nothing you could imagine could possibly do justice to the strangeness and deformity of these horrible creatures. Actually, that's probably not true. I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I, the effect I always have at the end of chapter one is like, wait, I, I don't even know what goblins are supposed to look like now. I thought I did briefly. You know, my imagination was temporarily unleashed. And then I was told, no, just throw that all out the window. It's actually irrelevant, right? Uh, the, the narrator often does this kind of thing. You have to, you have to watch. The narrator of this story is, is, is kind of sneaky, tricky. So uh, uh, sort of be on your guard against the narrator here. Um, but but yes, back to their heads and their feet. What do we make of their heads and their feet? Why, how does this make sense in the context of the rest of what we know? <clears throat> it seems clear that these are significant changes. That is that these, because these are the ways in which these seem to be a reflection of the ways that these ha they have changed from, they used to be regular people, and they, these are the ways in which they changed. Um, so just as their society is now different from human society, their bodies have changed, and there seems to be, you know, I, I think we are invited to see a reflection between their, their physiological changes and their cultural changes. What do you think? What are we well, and um, with the shoe thing for their feet, they um, their feet are vulnerable. You know, they they say this actually in front of the human, although they don't know that. Right. Um, so they know that if they are attacked, you know, their feet is a, that's a good place to go. And so it almost seems like, well, why wouldn't they wear shoes? Because it would protect their vulnerable feet, but they they won't. It's a pride thing. It's a pride thing, exactly. <clears throat> their cunning is undermined by their arrogance. Um, and the fact that they look down on humans in the way that they do. They won't wear shoes because humans do. And they despise it as a weakness in humans. Why do humans wear shoes, according to goblin, goblin tradition? Because they can't stand the sight of their own feet. Yes, yes. And I'm glad that you tactfully didn't even say the word toes. Right, uh, but yeah, they, exactly, exactly. They are obviously repulsed by their own grotesque feet, which I love that the description there. Split at the ends into nasty things. So it's a sign of their own pride, right? Ah, uh, look at our noble feet. That even though it's their weakness, they they weave it revealed. So, and, and their heads? Why are their heads larger and thicker, harder than human heads? Like they use their brains more, therefore they have a bigger head. They are, they, we're told in that first chapter that one of the changes when the goblins went underground, they become cleverer. We're told to believe that they're actually smarter than people. Again, we don't see what we might consider the obvious manifestations of higher intelligence. 
So the, the assumptions that we might have, you know, we don't see goblin libraries of, you know, the treatises they have written or the works of literature they have composed. We don't see any art or anything of that kind at all. We see no technology or science. But they are clever, we're told. So their heads got bigger and harder. And now their heads are invulnerable. Those puny, flimsy humans, they have to wear helmets in battle. Weenies. <laughs> we goblins <clears throat> don't need anything but our heads. Um, both the cleverness and the inviolability of the goblin skull, I think, are both important characters of this race as we see it. Yeah, Jordan? Interestingly, both of those characters can be kind of reversed as to why they apply to like the heads are swollen with arrogance, you could say. And if I had if a really short race that lived underground had a vulnerability anywhere, I'd say if they were not necessarily controlling their chain, but I'd say pretty smart to put on the feet where tall people can't easily reach it. Yeah, I mean, especially since they're, I mean, they're, they, they're shorter people with bigger heads than humans. So, I mean, you got to think, like, the body percentage that his head must be huge, right? I mean, they're going to be, like, I mean, tiny little huge-headed people. So, yeah, I mean, like, if you hit them, even just, like, the percentages, or you're going to get them in the head, right? I mean, they're mostly head. So, yeah, sure, very practical, very practical. Not only are they afraid of the sun, they heap scorn upon the sun. Do you remember this passage? And it's another place where our attention is drawn to it by Curdy's commentary. Curdy is our, uh, you know, like field guide to goblin culture on his first trip, right? And I think that if we pay attention to him, <clears throat> he's the one who draws our attention to things worth noting. Um, the stuff that strikes him as interesting I think we should certainly pay attention to. And one of the things that he, in fact, is so interested in that he almost loses his own head and, like, gives a verbal rebuttal is the comment about the sun. Does anyone recall this? Can, can anyone find this passage? Let's see, it's in chapter 9, I think. Lost my page. Uh, maybe on chapter eight, last page, chapter eight. The last page of chapter eight? Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. The Goblin Father. Now light your torches and come along. What a distinction it is to provide our own light instead of being dependent on a thing hung up in the air, a most disagreeable contrivance, intended, no doubt, to blind us when we venture out under its baleful influence. Quite glaring and vulgar, I call it, though no doubt useful to poor creatures who haven't the wit to make light for themselves. Curdy could hardly keep himself from calling, calling through to know whether they made the fire to light their torches by. But a moment's reflection showed him that they would have said that they did, inasmuch as they struck two stones together and the fire came. Notice it doesn't say, uh, but a moment's re reflection showed him that it would be really stupid to call out anything to the goblins right now as he was trying to hide from them, right? No, no, no. What shuts him up is not prudence, but uh, the fact that he figures out, like, he knows what they're going to say anyway, so there's no point. Now, what do we learn here? What does this show us about 
the goblin outlook and goblin culture. Sure. I was curious as to whether the goblins can or cannot see in the dark, because it seems that up to this point they've been hacking in the dark, so why are they suddenly lighting torches to walk down the passage if they can see? Um, and that didn't seem clear. I was almost wondering if the torches were just a contrivance so that Drake could actually follow them and see what was going on. Except they're so very proud of them. Yes. And they which, do. Which makes it seem as if they didn't use them that time. They also go out at night, like all the times they run into the goblins in the forest or wherever they are on the mountainside, they don't have any torches or anything. So uh, I'm just wondering what level of, of night vision. Yeah, it's a very relevant question. Hard to imagine that a completely subterranean race that is afraid of the sun and only goes out by night would not be able to see. Uh, in the case, would, would still require artificial light. Um, right, right. And not see it as a weakness on their part. Um, yeah, well, I mean, of course, this passage is full of ironies, right? That is, they sound really silly for boasting in the ways that they do. Um, and I would be kind of basically content to see that as sort of a further irony. That is, don't you, these torches that you're proud of, don't you realize that they show that you're almost completely useless? Like, you're useless in the dark and you're useless in the light? Like, it's only in this self-created half-light that you can operate? Um, that's, they're boasting about the thing which is sort of obviously limiting, or, or points to their most obvious limitation, and sort of unnatural Yes. Mac? Well, since that's pointed out, they don't have torches and they're you know, out around at night, you have to assume that they can, in fact, see in the dark. And uh, that makes me suspect that the torches are largely ceremonial. Like, it's less like, we need a torch because we're going more like, we need a torch because we need to show off the fact that we make our own life. <laughs> we have like, they're so focused on we have to be better than the humans, and maybe they're just doing this because they can. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I don't know, though. I'm not convinced. And the reason I'm not convinced is that with other things that humans do that they don't, they just look down on the humans for. And you would think that if they were night, if they had night vision, that they would say, like, oh, like the miners, for instance, they have lamps, lamps on their helmets, right? So you think they'd be like, oh, those poor pathetic humans who have to put lights on their heads in order to see, like, they suck and we're awesome, right? That's their normal approach. Um, so, so I'm not sure, especially, I'm not entirely convinced that they are uh, in the dark when they're packing up. He says, strike up your torches, because they didn't need more than one torch before, because they were all in the house. Um, whereas now, they're going to be in a line going down the tunnel, and we know that when they come back, the reason I think it's not ceremonious, ceremonial, could be ceremonious too, um, is that when they come back, they have torches too. That's how, remember, Curdy is lost in the dark or thinks he's lost, and then he sees their lights returning. Um, so certainly when they're going back home to get the last load of household effects is not a ceremonial occasion. Um, and yet they still have torches. They seem to need them. They seem to need them. Um, and which is why I think the safer assumption would be that there was light in their house, uh, firelight. Um, But your question, the thing with the sun and the, f the sun and the torches, right? The way that they talk about the sun as a, a contrivance, a thing hung up in the sky. 
that sun thing. Awful unnatural, isn't it? Vulgar, I call it. Whereas, you know, these torches that we light, that's like real light, good light. That's the genuine article right there. It shows that we have power that they don't. They just go around under that big, you know, gaudy thing up in the sky. And we have resources and nobility to make our own light. That really, like, they always come out at night, and they clearly come out around humans. Weren't they, like, under a very door somewhere? Yeah. Or window? How have they not noticed that people have torches or lanterns? Or what is wrong with them? Like, can smack them all? <laughs> <laughs> Don't smack them in the head, though. That's what you have to remember. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, they're, even in the ways in which they look down on humans, they're not quite fair to them. And again, I, this is why I say we're asked to take almost on faith that the goblins are more clever than humans, because there's precious little evidence of this. Um, and there are times like that when they seem, their, their own arrogance has, seems to have made them completely oblivious, even to things like that. Um, I mean, in fact, if anything, the miners' lights are more clever than the goblins because they're not just carrying around torches. You know, they have they have lights on their helmets. Um, there is, of course, the one other thing that we should talk about. Oh well, we'll talk more about the verse next time. Um, though I'll just ask. Why is it that we're told we're twice we're given the theory once by the narrator uh, and once I think by Curdie as to why it is that poetry so upsets goblins? Rhyming poetry, that is. Don't try free verse on goblins. <laughs> Aaron, go ahead. Because they can't make it themselves. They can't make it themselves. Yeah, and so it makes them angry, but it repels them as well. Um, I mean, I love the language that Curdie uses about his rhyming or when he's rhyming, the, uh, the, n- not the actual verse itself. But, you know, like he'll sing his song and then he'll say, that'll do for them, right? Like, what does it do exactly? Uh, I mean, let's look, that's... And he's, te- he was, it, he's tempted to rout the lot of them when he's overhearing the king's council. He sees all the goblins gathering together. Right, far from having the response like, wow, I'm like in serious danger right now. If I were to get caught by all of these goblins, they could easily kill me. Instead, he's like, I'm really tempted to try out a song right now and see what they would say. See if I could just rout them all. They'd all run away. Um, we will see Curdy's song used in combat uh, next time. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the verse then. But I don't want to leave class today without talking about uh, Irene's great huge grandmother, uh, because <laughs> that's obviously something. Possibly my favorite childlike touch in the whole thing, how great great grandmother is translated to big huge grandmother uh, in Irene's conversation. But what do we do with her? Where does she fit into this schema? Like, on the one hand, you know, what we've been focusing on. Uh, is, you know, so the relationship between the human world and the goblin world, and those seem to be sort of the parallel worlds, you know, the terra cognita and the strange and perilous other world. 
um, it's not like a great glorious other world. Instead, it's sort of a, you know, it's a subhuman and monstrous other world, but, uh, but, still, but yet we have a third variable in the equation in this story, right? We've been talking about the ground level and the basement level, but there's also an attic level too, right? Upstairs lives the grandmother, Irene, who is sharing her name with Irene. What do we do with her? What were you interested by in the depiction of her? Anything struck you as interesting or significant or sort of, yeah? Brittany? Well, it's, it's said that she's, you know, she, she's spinning up in the attic, and that immediately struck a fairy tale image in my mind because of Rumpel skin and Sleeping Beauty and everything. Yeah. And I don't know, because she's depicted as an old lady, that also brings to mind a fairy image as well. Yeah. So, I mean, and especially since, just in case we didn't make anything of the spinning, the narrator makes sure we make something of the spinning by rendering her spinning mysterious. And uh, later on, you'll learn more about what it is she is spinning. It's like, <laughs> it never would have occurred to me to ask that question. Thank you for prompting me to think <laughs> that there was something mysterious about that. Um, and uh, again, that's the kind of thing that... that uh, uh, McDonald's narrator does a lot, but but anyway, okay. So we got the spinning, which is one thing. What, what else is 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 you know, other sort of uh, fairy flags about her? Any other things about her that set up your 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 fairy uh, alarms? Well, she was older than old, older than a hundred. Yes. Are you 50? (laughs) Which is ancient. (laughs) To Irene. Older than that. She's older than 100. Yeah. So she is indefinitely old. But she's also um, still beautiful. And, and, you know, she has white hair, but that's about all you can tell that's old of her. Yeah. She's young otherwise. Yeah. She seems to be timeless and ageless. Um, Here... Irene seems to be encountering something which is genuinely other, genuinely outside of human experience, um, though still not unconnected to humanity, not totally other, because they're related. She's her great-great-grandmother, right? Um, so even here we have a connection, but we have still the definitely other aspects on her, her beauty, her age, her spinning, which we are <clears throat> told is mysterious. What else is unusual about her? Her diet. Her diet, yes. <laughs> right, she lives only on pigeon's eggs. She keeps her crown in her bedroom, which is very sensible, apparently. Yes, it's very sensible. <laughs> Prompting the conversation later on about whether or not she wears the bed. <laughs> right. um, I love Ludie's suggestion that her father, the king, probably does wear his crown to bed. Of course. Naturally. Um, What else? What else is important about this this other fairy world, this upstairs fairy world? No one knows it's in the house, and then um, Irene can only find it, like, very, it's really random. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and that's another really interesting narrator moment, right? Like other encounters with fairy that we've seen, the boundary is indefinite. It's not just a place. It's not just that there's a secret room up on the third story where the great huge grandmother lives. Instead, it, it's, it's unclear. She tries to go back, and she doesn't find it again the second time. It seems sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Though, again, McDonald's narrator does his thing again and gives us a theory. I think it's possible that she actually stopped a floor too soon. She can go quite enough, far enough up the stairs, right? There might be a perfectly rational explanation as to why she doesn't find the grandmother the second time. But the words of, her, of Irene's father at the end suggest that that's not the case, that it's not just a case of her taking a wrong turning and, not, and failing to locate it the second time. But rather, as he says, when she says, you want to come up and see my grandmother, he says... I can't. Why can't he? She didn't invite him. Yes. And great ladies like that like to have invitations given and accepted. So if she doesn't invite you, you can't go. As seems to be the case the second time with Irene. And even Irene seems to suspect that there's something strange about it. Remember when she starts crying and she realizes it was only after I cried last time that I found it. As if, again, there's more than just hunting around the geographical region to finding the place. She found her before because she needed her before. And what happens the second time when she cries? Does she find her the second time? After crying? No, what does she find? The stairs down to the kitchen. She is still helped, but not brought into the presence, not brought back into the room. Um the way in which McDonald has, through this, set up this three-part system, the much more sort of classical fairy world of the upstairs room of the grandmother, the terra cognita of the downstairs of Irene's house, and then the strange but not totally other subhuman realm of the goblins uh, is interesting. And one of the, <clears throat> of course, one of the things that we will need to be watching through the rest of the story are how those three worlds are related to each other and how they interact with each other. And Irene being the primary one who goes among all three. We haven't seen her go down into the goblins' realm yet, but a uh, little spoiler there. She, she's gonna... Okay, uh... Thank you for bearing with my vocal limitations today. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.